welcome to Biota Live. I'm Tom Barbelay, and this is a continuation of the Biota Podcast. For more information, go to biota.org slash podcast. Now we have two callers on the line, so I know who the first one is, so I'm going to introduce him first. Hello, Travis. Hey there. How's it going? Pretty good. Pretty good. I have another caller, so I'll just pick up the other caller. Hello, second caller. Hello. Hello, it's Jeffrey. Oh, hello, Jeffrey. Good to talk to you. How are you? Oh, pretty good. Pretty good. So we've had two weeks off, and we've got a lot of uh, news and notes, including uh, something very close to Travis's uh, interests. So I might start just with the news and notes, and then we'll get into the topic for this evening. So as I noted, this is a continuation of the Biota podcast. Um, If you're listening to this live, I recommend you check out biota.org slash podcast. We have a live call-in number if you want to be like Travis and Jeffrey. The number is 646-200-0640. Typically every Friday evening, 8 p.m. Pacific, we do Biota Live. And, however, uh, next Friday we won't be doing a Biota Live because uh, the Saturday morning, which I believe is uh, March 22nd at 10 a.m. Pacific, we are going to be discussing the Evo Grid and also potentially... Uh, this new group of artificial life startups of which Travis is a part of. Obviously, we've had just a line on talking about his uh, projects in the past, but this new movement of artificial life startups that have made contact in the you know, past uh, three to six months are very exciting. Travis, would you like to introduce your particular interest with regards to artificial life? Well, certainly. Um, I actually got uh, hooked up with Adam a while back um uh, Adam Aramenko and Justin Lyon and Robert Rice a little while back and started working with them and kind of following what they were doing. And um, I've actually been into uh, uh, looking for, you know, this type of, of project for a long time. Um, about nine years now, I've been exploring artificial life forms, uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning, genetic algorithms, um, and different applications and using them actively in my professional work. And so um, when I saw Adam's work, it was actually quite intriguing because he's actually quite advanced in his, um, in his research. And so that's kind of when I started going, hmm, this is quite interesting. I wonder what I can contribute to that. And so I started listening to the Biota podcast. I uh, have been talking to uh, uh, Robert and Robert Rice and all of them and kind of just getting my hands dirty with it. So Terrific. Adam uh, is someone who I've wanted to have on uh, the Biota podcast for quite a while now, so I believe uh, you, he, and I are going to get together for a couple of Biota chats with regards to uh, quite a few issues. So, folks, uh, you have that to look forward to in the in the future. I'm going to talk a little bit about that in a couple of minutes. But additional news, we have a lot of it. Uh, Greytham related news. I believe Greytham London will be meeting again at the Charlotte Street Hotel. Now, I was looking at my notes. I have the 26th of March down from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. in London. Uh, Charlotte Street Hotel, which is 15 to 17, Charlotte Street, London, W-I-T-I-R-J, or sorry, 1-R-J. Um, however, you probably need confirmation with Justin Lyon. So if you have any questions with regards to when the Graysome London meeting is, please contact me directly, tom at noble8.com or through the Biota comments page, as Travis has done in the past couple of days, and I will get the email to Justin. Unfortunately, the Graysome folk are having problems with their website currently, so the previous uh, link with regards to Graysome London 
uh, directly from the Biota page doesn't work currently. However, I believe Justin's blog link is still good. Uh, if you want to go to biota.org slash podcast and find Justin that way. Well, our own Bruce Damer went to Grayson Boston, and if you're subscribed to the feed, uh, you have heard his 10-minute introduction to the folks at Grayson Boston. For folks who are listening to this live, the feed refers to the podcast feed, which, again, you can get to from biota.org slash podcast, which will give you all the feed options if you're listening via iTunes or if you have another uh, preferred aggregator, the RSS feed information is there. But so much news coming back from Grayson Boston. Um, obviously, Bruce was uh, discussing the Evo grid, and he met with uh, half a dozen Grayson folk following. In fact, I think a couple of those following, including Adam, uh, amongst others. Um, there are a suite of photographs on evogrid.org. That's E-V-O-G-R-I-D.org. Now, one of the interesting pieces of feedback that Bruce gave me was that only a few folk at uh, Grayson Boston actually listen to this podcast. So what we're going to be doing for the next Grayson is I'm going to be burning a set of CDs and I think probably sending them to Brian, and he will be handing them out to Grayson Boston. So folks at Grayson Boston who haven't heard the podcast up until now will have the opportunity to hear the podcast. Another interesting piece of feedback with regards to the other grey thumbs was um, Bruce took a series of photos of the gathering, and the thing that I noticed was that there weren't any under-21s at the gathering. Um, I think the artificial life community, typically folks tend to get interested or can get interested from their mid-teens on, and holding it at a pub uh, basically eliminated those kind of 15 to 21 folk. Um, so I think I was talking to uh, Bruce through the week and we thought that probably the Grayson Silicon Valley would be held in a, a coffee shop or something like that, um, probably either um, in the kind of Berkeley area or the Stanford area to kind of capitalize on um, the, the folks that were coming through. And another interesting thing was following Bruce's uh, meetings, he did a talk there, but he also did meetings a couple of days later, we had a huge influx of people. Uh, great and related folk checking out the biota stuff and getting uh, subscribed to the podcast and listening in, which was wonderful. But it's a strange thing that there needs to be a kind of combination of grassroots elements as well as um, what we're doing currently, which is obviously recording and putting out a lot of audio. However, we have new mailing lists. So for folks who want to correspond with regards to the podcast or uh, just general biota-related discussion, go to the biota website, biota.org, and click the mailing list link, and that will give you uh, three mailing lists. One's an announcement mailing list, one's the biota conversations mailing list, which is like a conversations mailing list, funnily enough, which active communication is always uh, enjoyed. And the final link is the podcast mailing list where you can get and have up-to-the-day information about what is going to be appearing in future podcasts and various discussions along that line. Now, I received some wonderful correspondence from a listener, John Ferguson, um, about his interests in the Biota podcast and how he has a background um, in nothing related to artificial life specifically. Um, but he got interested in the podcast through the Podcast 411 interview that I did with Rob Walsh ooh, probably six to eight months ago now. He was inspired from uh, Justin's discussion to check out Gerald's videos, uh, and he emailed me a set of questions relating to whether artificial life could ever become unified in terms of the discussions with regards to wet artificial life and the development that's being done in soft artificial life, if there was some meta-idea which came through in the podcast. 
he gave a lot of additional feedback and I really enjoyed his correspondence. We had a kind of three or four email chain that I copied to um, the podcast mailing list. So <clears throat> as I don't come from these parts, uh, I'm going to be getting a box of my stuff from Australia sent to me. And I went through my bookshelves and I have four books which I would like to give away to podcast listeners who would like to correspond. They are Richard Dawkins' Ancestor's Tale, Steve Wozniak's I Was, uh, Stephen Jay Gould's Ever Since Darwin, and the Oxford Dictionary of Philosophy. In order to get one of these books, all you need to do is email me a podcast topic, tom at noble8.com, and if we use the podcast topic, you can get one of these books sent to you, no matter where you are all over the world. So tom at noble8.com, you'll receive one of the books. Please specify which book of the four that I listed you'd like, and it will get out to you if we use your topic. Now, I was going to announce that I'm going to be doing a series of bio-to-chats with artificial life startups to see what the visions associated with their particular startups would be, and we have Travis on the line. He's going to be one of those chats. In fact, he's going to be a couple of those chats, but he's going to be uh, collectively uh, one of the groups that I'll be chatting with. I'd also like to welcome, um, since the last podcast, we've had an influx of uh, Kurzweilian singularists who have come through. Now, here's a little something for you, Jeffrey. Yeah. If you were uh, part of the Kurzweilian um, singularity movement mm -hmm. and you were going to create a website that may be something like the Biota website, what do you think you would call that website? Oh, wait a minute. Now, let, me, let me understand your question. If I were part of the singularist movement... Mm -hmm. Okay, that's one if. And then the other if is, if I were to build a website which is what? Similar to this Biota? It would be, would be in some way reference to the Biota movement. What would you call the website? Oh, well, I haven't read that Kurzweil's book. Um, but uh, I, you know, I heard Douglas Hofstadter talk about it at an A-Life conference, and he, okay. was all, he was all excited about it. Um, <clears throat> Gosh, is this a trick question? The joke uh, has gone on for too long. The mailing lists come from postbiota.org, which uh, Bruce and I had a good chuckle about, but we'd like to welcome the folks from postbiota.org um, who have subscribed to uh, various mailing lists and hopefully are listening to this podcast for the first time. Anyway, if any of those folk are listening live, or anyone else for that matter, the call-in number is 646 so the topic for this week um, was with regards to long-term simulation, sustainable simulation, multi-generational simulation, basically the kind of stuff that Jeffrey and I have been developing for, for quite some time now. And Travis, in terms of your own development of artificial life, have you actually written your own simulations? I certainly have. And were they kind of multi-life cycle, multi-agent simulations? Yes, they absolutely were. They were based upon the uh, emergent behavior of many agents interacting. Great. So you're absolutely suited for this topic as well. So I wanted to start by characterizing the distinctions between these kind of simulations and, for example, what Carl Sims did and what Jeffrey is doing currently uh, with regards to uh, finite time cycle um, intelligent agent simulation and uh, finite time cycle genetic algorithm simulation, sorry. Mm -hmm. And really the multi-agent, multi-life cycle simulations are quite different um, in their appearance and uh, um, in terms of the background programming. Now, obviously, concepts like energy uh, and sustainability and running the simulations for long periods of time 
are all in, um, you know, components of these uh, multi-agent, multi-life cycle simulations. But the other component is um, obviously birth, reproduction and death, um, which is the genetic algorithm component as well. Jeffrey, with regards to Darwin Pond and Gene Pool, this was obviously the, the you know, the, the critical components. Can you talk a little bit about the, uh, just the development of these kind of simulations? Well, uh, uh, birth, life, death, uh, all that. Um, I, I think perhaps the most important thing about uh, Gene Pool, Darwin Pond and Gene Pool is that I, I, I did, uh, you know, learn the genetic algorithm technique um, and kind of got got that idea uh gene pool basically takes uh, the pieces the the uh the genetic operators and allows them to go on asynchronously so uh it's not done in a lockstep manner which you know any uh, artificial life program would do and make it more natural um and there is a there is an energy system but it's not i wouldn't call it sophisticated hopefully the next version it will be much more sophisticated can you talk a little bit about the energy system well, um, so there are three places where energy can exist, inside a swimmer, uh, a, a creature, inside of a little bit of food that's floating around, and in the ambient uh, sort of domain of the, of the water. So it's, it, there, there's a pond in the case of Darwin Pond or a pool in the case of Gene Pool, uh, same thing, and then these bits of food in the swimmers. And the swimmers eat the food, the energy goes to the swimmer. When the swimmer swims, particularly when it, it moves its joints rapidly, it burns off energy. And that energy just sort of like dissipates out into the pool where, where it is then available to generate, spontaneously generate food. So that's, that's the model. Um, and uh, in, the, in the next model, uh, someone had suggested that there should be a, some sort of a source, a, a sun, some source as in a solar body that, that provides sort of the original source of energy um, just to make it a more interesting, more open system. So I've been thinking, thinking about that. I mean, certainly my experiments with Noble Ape, the fish source, when it was originally an island and the apes were living on the island, the sources of sea fish that came into the island was equivalent to your sun or analogous to your sun in some regard. There was also yeah. vegetative growth as well. Travis, can you talk a little bit about your, um, your simulations? Um, certainly. Uh, I actually um, don't have an implicit um, <clears throat> energy source as such. Uh, in a lot of my simulations, I do have a fitness function, and it seems to me that the fitness function is always the thing that, you know, as we know, is kind of the, the, the thing that pivot, they'll pivots the entire thing. Um, I've had to learn a lot about the way fitness functions work. Um, first of all, um, you know, the thing will always do uh, exactly what you tell it, which means that if you tell it to do something, it'll do that thing. But if you don't tell it not to do something, it'll also do that thing, right? <laughs> and this can be very, very bad um, in that the type of behavior that emerges doesn't always address the problem because you're not specifying the problem specifically enough to include, or rather to exclude behaviors that don't solve the problem. Behaviors like cheating, stealing, lying, uh, manipulation, um, racism, uh, elitism, those types of things. Um, mm -hmm. I've, I've evolved simulations where um, solutions that evolved were uh, the ones that actually ended up surviving at the end of it were the ones that were better at stealing the answer from their neighbor than at actually producing the answer themselves because guess what? It ends up being more fit, right? Um, 
And so uh, this has been, you know, very much kind of the, 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 the crux of, of all of my simulations is dealing with this fitness function, right? Certainly the, the real fun that I've had with, uh, with um, Jeffrey's work has always been about this kind of devolution component where creatures which are um, almost stagnant and kind of bloated uh, can, can come and dominate. In terms of the, um, the unexpected, what you're talking about here is really our judgments based on the, the simulated yeah. environments in some regard. Would you like to talk a little bit more about that, Travis? I would love to, um, and you're absolutely right. The reason that they develop these what we would call maligned behaviors is because they don't have any sort of moral framework which could possibly relate to ours. You know, if we're talking about, well, just pretend for a second that we're talking about a self-aware piece of code. What is a self-aware piece of code aware of? Well, it turns out that it's not actually aware that it's a piece of code any more than you or I are aware that we're a bunch of atoms which are conforming to a physics framework. Instead, it's aware of a, of a couple of things. Number one, in a, a landscape uh, that, it, that it exists within. Number two, um, some sort of uh, fitness function which is providing, or some sort of stimulus which is its inputs and outputs and some sort, of, sort of response that it's producing, which is, of course, the simulation continuing over time, right? And so these types of behaviors, you know, they are our judgments of these of what it is that they're doing. There are interpretations because they really don't have these concepts. And it turns out, you know, at least in my opinion, that life is a, is a pretty rough and tumble world that actually, you know, these types of behaviors definitely do exist in the wild and end up being more fit. And the ones, the, the chimpanzees who do learn to, you know, lie and cheat and steal from their neighbors actually, you know, end up, end up surviving where the ones that get lied and cheated and stealed, stealed from don't because they lose their food supply or whatever happens, right? This is easily demonstrable. Certainly, I mean, my development with Noble Ape initially was, when you talk about the harshness of society, I was very interested in seeing how the landscape affected that. Like, for example, if there was an environment of almost mass starvation, you know, what kind of things mm -hmm. would come out of that? But similarly, in particularly rocky landscapes where the apes could become isolated or dual islands or things like that in the initial simulation, I was interested in seeing... I mean, it, it's funny because we're describing these relatively high-level abstract um, points, but uh, what I wanted to... Uh, a point that I wanted to make very clear in this podcast was the, the ease of programming ability in order to create these kind of simulations. So really, if we can go back to first principles, Jeffrey, what kind of, what kind of uh, books or what kind of writing or what kind of ideas led you towards creating um, your development and was there something that you came to initially that showed you the path or was it through constant experimentation that got you into your early development with regards to Gene Paul and Darwin Pond? Uh, it was really a combination of both, um, just lots of uh, coding and coding all different kinds of things and, 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 and getting that skill going. But there certainly were books, uh, uh, of course, all of Dawkins' books that I've read, um, so, uh, some books on animation, real-time animation, to kind of uh, learn about the physics and stuff. And, of course, Goldberg's book on genetic algorithms was a good book to kind of get, get all that process figured out. Um, and many other books as well. Yeah, I think certainly the plurality of books that are, um, as you say, not quite on specifically the topic or on a very high-level part of the topic or on something that surrounds the topic, when you actually get down to writing the code, however, 
can you think of any books that were um well I'm, I'm not familiar with um I'm not familiar with Goldberg's book explicitly. Is that a code based book or is that more a high level discussion book? It's got some examples of code, but it's uh, I think it's mostly pseudocode in there. Uh it's basically in fact I'm looking at it right now, um how to make genetic algorithms. It's called Genetic Algorithms by David Goldberg. Okay. Um and uh, it's a really good book. It, it explains the whole thing. It's it's kind of old at this point, but it's still a great picture of you know the whole idea. Um, and he talks about the, the work that John Holland did, who uh, I, I think he was the originator of genetic algorithms, or he defined a lot of the concepts. But that was a good book. And Travis, in terms of your development, what did you draw upon? Um, certainly, I've been standing on the shoulders of giants without question. Uh, it kind of started way back with you know the game of life and uh, cellular automata, um, uh, ELISA, and artificial intelligence studies of that nature. I don't have any specific um, sources because it's really just kind of me browsing around the web. Um, this grew into genetic algorithms, uh, neural nets. I use neural nets for um, doing stock trading signals and things of that nature. Um, long before I got into artificial life. Um, uh, <clears throat> also, um, using uh, the thing that really kicked off kind of my most recent experiments was um, seeing what Adam had done. Uh, I thought that Adam, yeah, I definitely played with Darwin at Home and, and Noble Ape, and I thought that Adam had really kind of unlocked some, you know, potentially interesting things. And, so can you talk a little bit about Adam's work? Um, Autocore um, is certainly a, a very he's done a, he's done a number of things that you can kind of find on the web. There's Google videos on the web of Autocore doing kind of different things, and um, it's uh, an evolutionary computational engine, probabilistic. Um, to uh, it basically searches for the, the solution in, in program space, right, and applies a genetic algorithm to searching within that program space because. It's the infinite number of monkeys typing on a typewriter theory where you have an infinite set, so all, probabil all probabilities, all um, lines of code, all, different, all the different programs are equally represented within this infinite set. And so if you just search long enough within this infinite set, you'll eventually find the code that you're looking for. Well, of course, we don't have a computer that can search an infinite set. So what you can do is you can use evolution as a shortcut to shortcut and genetic algorithms and things of that nature to shortcut the process of searching for the solution in, in code space. So about probably a year and a half ago, I was communicating with some of the folk who write the Four Dummies book with regards to artificial life for dummies. And the thing that struck me at the time was you've, you've mentioned two things, which um, novice programmers and people listening to this podcast who are artificial life curious as opposed to artificial life obsessive may be interested in hearing more about, is how do you actually go about writing a genetic algorithm and tuning it? And similarly, how do you go about writing a neural network and tuning it in kind of 100 words or less? There's not uh, any good reference that I could think of at the moment, the only thing that I could really say would be go out on the internet, grab um, a, a neural net package, there's plenty of them, and come up with a fitness function. Download a bunch of images from Google of your favorite motorcycles, download a bunch of images of your favorite boats, and feed these to the neural network saying these are boats, these are motorcycles, and then watch how this neural network trains itself using uh, trial and error and an evolutionary process and then to um, weight its different different nets to recognize this arbitrary data set. Jeffrey, have you used neural networks in your in your work? Uh, a, a very small amount. Um, I did use it briefly when I was uh, 
studying some of this stuff at MIT, and um, they were small neural nets. Um, uh, but I haven't really done a whole lot of work in that area. Yeah, when I when I interviewed Steve Grand, what the final uh, interview is on his neural network work, and I was trying throughout those three interviews to tease technical information out of Steve Grant <laughs> because he has, in terms of the artificial life space and also in terms of the game-playing space mm-hmm. with regards to artificial life, he has made some quite profound insights with regards to uh, neural networks, which I think would have probably, if, if he had been working on Spore, um, you know, it probably would have been out uh, 18 months earlier. Mm-hmm. So it always interests me, and, you know, you, it really is a secret source component that I think a lot of our um, artificial life curious or folks that are just starting out developing artificial life would really be interested in knowing, you know, what are, what are the basic shortcuts to create? Now, the description that you've given, Travis, um, is very interesting because it's kind of a textbook description with regards to neural networks in some regard. How do you put those neural networks then into an artificial life environment? Um, I haven't found a way yet, to be perfectly honest with you. Uh, the neural networks uh, work really great as a weighting system for training specific um, weights and uh, trying to deduce some sort of some sort of way of 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 creating a, um, a a threshold system is what I'm trying to say, where it trips a certain threshold when it when a certain amount of information is present or not present. Um, the way that if I were to experiment with this is I would use a genetic algorithm to optimize the structure of the neural network and try different types of neural, net- neural networks against different uh, fitness functions. But this, again, drives us back to that critical uh, two words, the fitness function. Yes. And the interesting yeah. thing, the interesting thing with regards to fitness functions in artificial life, and this is an ongoing topic of discussion between Gerald and I both through these podcasts and also offline, or actually through email, um, is the idea of the implicit versus the explicit fitness function. Now, what Gerald does in Darwin at Home is very much an explicit fitness function in terms of the fact there's a finite amount of time, uh, the yeah. movement, these kind of things. Uh, whereas my preferred mode through Noble Ape is that life is the ultimate fitness function. Right. And the apes that survive, or the apes that reproduce more importantly, but also the apes that survive slightly longer and maybe reproduce slightly more, get the genetic advantages that their uh, precursors that are prone to drowning and living by themselves and self-doubt and all those kind of things do not get. So um, I'm interested in... Um, I mean, obviously, Jeffrey, with... Uh, Gene Paul and, and Darwin Pond, you were, you, your fitness functions were somewhere straddling the implicit versus the explicit. Can you talk a little bit about the, the fitness functions that you employed? Well, the, the fitness functions, um, uh, I, I think, are when you were talking about noble ape and, and you know, you define it as the ability of an ape to reproduce, and that's, that's how I've framed this. Um, so uh, I define fitness as it's a swimmer's ability to reach another swimmer that it wants to mate with, or it's a swimmer's ability to be attractive and to have other mates come and, and mate with it. Um, so, and those are the sort of the two sides that that, um, uh, that that sort of roughly correspond to natural selection and sexual selection. Um, but um, but as, as far as you know, how the swimmer is able to swim or or reach its goal, which is either a mate or a piece of food, um, that's completely up to the genetic uh, 
you know, the, the, the genetics, which determines morphology and motion. So, uh, it's fairly- so in, in that definition, attractiveness is, in fact, something which you haven't explicitly defined, but is something which is created through the fitness function. Actually, no. That's that's something that I, I that I would like to make that more uh, genetically based. Right now, the way it is, you you as the sort of god uh, of the universe can set the attraction criterion, um, and um, <clears throat> I think what would make it more interesting is to have the attract the attraction criterion evolve, so that they can decide for themselves what's attractive and and. Uh, perish because they're they're attracted to the wrong qualities or or survive because they're attracted to the right qualities so let's let's talk a little bit about the sustainability idea because this is certainly something which i found through developing noble ape particularly because people download it and if all the apes die relatively quickly Mm. they may not they'll lose interest um and this is something which came back through recent correspondence that i had with gerald with regards to this idea of implicit versus explicit and he said look you create these apes, you put all this energy around that they can eat, you give them all these abilities to interact and communicate, but all of this stuff is fundamentally pretend. And what struck me through that was that really it's the layers of addition that you make that can create the kind of richness. But through developing Noble Ape, I certainly tweaked the sustainability, as I'm sure you've had to do with, with both of your collective works, in terms of creating a system which is uh, user-attractive as well. Um, mm. Jeffrey, I want to start with you in particular with regards to that, because obviously you've had to do that through the process. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, certainly, uh, you know, I had two goals uh, in, in making Gene Pool. One is to, 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 make, uh, it, um, to make things emerge on their own uh, as a true artificial life simulation. But at the same time, to, to have things stay alive most of the time so that the population would occasionally die, but not as often as, 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 uh, to not die as often, simply for the sake of users, the user's enjoyment. Um, so, so certainly there are things that I've done that make it, um, more enjoyable or more educational or informative to the user, uh, which, sometimes goes against the uh, open-endedness of the artificial life simulation. So I think it was just striking the right balance for that. Certainly. Can you talk a little bit about your experience with that, Travis? Absolutely. Um, first of all, I think you, start, you struck a very important chord with the whole implicit versus explicit fitness function. Um, what I have found in my search for artificial life is that when doing evolutionary computation engines, your fitness function will always bring you towards a certain direction, but that direction is too complex to embody in a simple fitness function. And so the fitness function um, in my solution must be implicit in order to to actually bring about what we would consider artificial life, right? Um, And that's why um, the kind of the most, the the real uh, dramatic moment for me happened when I removed the fitness function from my system and watched what happened. And that's when, um, uh, first of all, I saw that I had a problem because uh, what would happen was that things which were uh, really good at replicating would immediately just kind of dominate the landscape and nothing else would be able to exist. And um, what I realized was that more biodiversity was required in order to Mm -hmm. um, find a, a truly fit solution. 
And so this is when kind of the more implicit fitness functions started to evolve in my mind. And when the, my search from a artificial, from a, uh, from an evolutionary computation engine to a artificial life form started, right? My, my path down looking for that, right? So can we talk a little bit about that skill set? Because this is something which, um, so my, my own thinking in terms of teaching folk how to create artificial life simulations or maintain existing artificial life simulations, this ability to recognize these kind of patterns is critical, but it's very hard to teach. It's something that really needs to come through the process mm. of you, as you've described it, Travis. Mm. If you were to summarize that, how, how would you begin to approach it? Well, um, my real enlightening began when I began to see, uh, understand how life sciences worked. Um, because computer sciences constantly brought me against glass ceilings. Artificial life, or artificial intelligence, was a total glass ceiling where I kept on going, I can see that there's more, but I can't move past this plateau that we're presently stuck at with our understanding of the technology. And it wasn't until I understood that life, it's like you said, life actually does provide the best fitness function because that which is more clever is more fit and that which is more intelligent is more clever. And therefore, that's a, the, the eventuality of any, of any fit, of any um, possibility within that, right? Which is why I think that you also made a pretty good point about um, the whole noble ape being, you know, pretend, is at no point do we actually expect that an organism is going to, you know, uh, start becoming intelligent from this, right? We can, we can, we can, um, we can simulate and experiment and understand a lot of the processes, and in fact, possibly all of the processes, by witnessing um, them in action. And but ultimately, these these designs of these types of simulations, like you know, if you're designing a like with the uh, Darwin at home, if you're designing a walker, it's always going to be a walker. It's never going to be anything more because that's what you put your fitness function to, right? Mm -hmm. And so the ultimate fitness function is that of kind of no fitness function or an implicit fitness function um, that forces things to be forces things to be more clever about their existence. Right. So in terms of your own experimentation, Jeffrey, can you can you crystallize this kind of pattern and cycle recognition that's required for tuning artificial life systems? Uh, maybe you could be more specific. Um, okay, in, in my own background, uh, before I wrote artificial life software, I wrote antiviral software. Uh -huh. And through this process, I mm -hmm. um, began to see um, curves and graphs and things in terms of uh, infections and the way um, in which the computer viruses infected various areas and these kind of things, which taught me um, a great degree about biological systems through very non-biological sources. <laughs> but what I found very striking was that my pattern recognition in terms of the graphs and in terms of how these things propagated and my expectations and all these things that I generated, it's a bit like rote learning. I mean, the, whilst rote learning um, has, you know, a, a number of problems, what it does do is it gives you kind of muscle reflex with regards to how to do multiplication and things of that nature. So it was a similar kind of training for me in that regard. So when I came to Noble Ape, I had moved from writing antiviral software, and the, the growth component and these kind of things fascinated me, so I wrote agar simulation, mm. which again showed me, um, you know, how, uh, what, what kind of conditions made stability, uh, and to underscore um, what, what's 
seems to be coming through, and I think I've also made this point when I um, interviewed uh, John P. Daigle, the more organisms in a simulation or the more diversity of organisms in a simulation, which, Jeffrey, you escape from beautifully by having a diverse series of organisms uh, coexisting but also being genetically interactable, mm-hmm. the more organisms and the diversity, the more stable the simulation. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've not seen this proved with uh, Runge-Cutter equations. I'm sure it's provable through Runge-Cutter equations. But I've found when you start having uh, six to nine different kinds of uh, organisms interacting um, with regards to energy usage and things like that, they're a lot easier to um, stabilize than if you just have rabbits and foxes. Mm. So these kind of things led me towards um, some sense of what was required to uh, make stable simulation environments, what implicit components were needed in terms of rates of growth, uh, competition, food, sustainability. And I still to this day haven't been able to, aside from, as I think we all seem to be saying, do it, play with it, interact with it, get a sense of it, and then you'll understand. But I still to this day haven't found, um, aside from relatively abstract mathematics and things that are probably going to alienate uh, a new user (laughs) anyway, methods of explaining this implicitly. I think the beauty with regards to your work, uh, Jeffrey, is that you almost get there um, through playing with um, Gene Poole and, and Darwin Pond. You almost get there. But in terms of teaching that kind of higher level understanding, yeah. how would you describe that to, to a new simulator? Well, actually, I, I had almost forgotten, but I, I, I taught an artificial life class at UCSD down in San Diego about 10 years ago, or maybe it was more, I can't remember. And <clears throat> what I did was, I, in a way, like probably many teachers do, you, you kind of relive your own uh, exploratory evolution, uh, and, and you give it to your students. And I, I got started with fractals, right? And so by programming fractals, I was able to change the parameters of a fractal and see the fractal change and actually animate them over time. And this sort of created a paradigm shift of how to create images based on parameters, and that obviously led to genetics. And so the course that I um, taught, first I taught the students how to make a basic tree fractal and then how to animate, how to... Um, you know, use it. Use a. I think we used a, a Dawkins-like biomorph uh, interactive evolution tool that we made. And then um, I believe it's been a while, but I think we we sort of graduated from from that to a more open-ended system. So so the idea, and if I had been able to teach this course several times, it probably could have been articulated better. But the idea was to just sort of graduate f- from a single a biomorph-like entity and then to, to go up to making populations of them and, uh, and sort of move, move into the population dynamic realm rather than start from, from that realm. And um, at least for me, that was, that was an easy way to kind of get into this. Certainly this is what people talk about with the, the Maxis generation, the SimCity generation, and a few of the folks that we've interviewed um, through these Biota podcasts talk about playing with SimCity, playing with SimAnt, and these kind of simulation, well, um, pseudo-simulation environments in some regard as a way of kind of starting to understand that, you know, you can, you can create these kind of simulations. And I think the interesting thing in doing these kind of discussions, which is why I want to put these kind of discussions into the Biota podcast, is the idea that a diversity of folk who 
you know, see artificial life simulations and maybe have an interest in psychology, as Travis has noted, or have um, an interest in uh, certain aspects of ecology or um, sociology or all these kind of areas can come to artificial life and start use, utilizing some of the artificial life tools that exist or even better, prompt artificial life developers to make the tools that they'd like to see. So I think talking about these uh, concepts in a kind of higher level sense with regards to how we've all kind of come uh, to these simulation concepts is really important. Now, part of this interaction is the idea that by creating these simulations, it isn't just a, a tool in and of itself in terms of looking inward. These actually produce interesting byproducts that can be talked about to a broader community. Now, I was looking at the Artificial Life 11 themes, uh, which is coming up, I think, in August this year in the UK. Uh, and Diamond Harvey is talking about um, uh, inertia, with regards to inertia and simulations. Now, what he's doing here is talking about uh, ideas of entropy and how you actually create artificial life simulations uh, with energy functions that may be decreasing or how you write the simulations implicitly with regards to entropy. Now, this touched on a number of ideas that I had when I started developing Noble Ape as well because I was always fascinated, still am, with regards to entropy and human inertia primarily, but primate inertia and also uh, cats and these kind of things. It's this idea of boredom, uh, mm. which people talk about in terms of animals. And I've never thought of animals as being bored. I've always thought of them as being some kind of resting thinking state. It's in some regard the worst kind of anthropomorphism to put boredom onto an animal in some regard. But in talking about these ideas with regards to relatively simple simulations and concepts of energy and then moving it up to um, you know, dynamic, uh, perhaps pseudo-communicative, perhaps actually communicative um, communities within these kind of simulations, Questions, high-level descriptions like entropy, which are in fact embodied in, in low-level physics, can lead to um, ideas of inertia. And this touched me in particular, Jeffrey, with regards to my own playing with your stuff, which I've already noted, that sometimes the most inert um, creatures within your, within your ponds and pools mm. end up being the dominant ones. Mm. Um, mm. Now, in terms of inertia and these kind of things, you've talked a little bit about how energy is dispersed through um, your simulations. But when you think about energy, do you think about ideas of entropy and inertia or are you trying to get a zero sum? or uh, What's your thinking with regards to the energy? Uh, well, I, I've never thought of entropy, but now that you've talked about it, I certainly am going to think about it now because it's fascinating. Um, you know, when you think about a, a, a human or an animal or a plant or any organism as a negentropic phenomenon, something that goes against entropy, um, and that, you know, here on Earth, the biosphere is pushing away from entropy, creating useful energy and, and more complexity, um, but eventually, uh, well, that will give way as, as well to heat death. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's making me think in a, in a different way about, you know, how you can talk about these creatures. Some of them may be bored, if you want to call it that, or, or more inertial. Um, others are more um, <clears throat> complex, and maybe they're burning more energy. Or, um, but anyway, uh, it's fascinating. Yeah, no, certainly intelligence is the anti-entropy. And this is something that I return to, which you've just noted, that basically... It, it, the, as you say, uh, what you can simulate sometimes to make it totally entropic is not actually 
the reality that we observe. However, aspects of, of uh, human and animal inertia are, are relatively inevitable as well. What's mm. your thinking with regards to all of this, Travis? Um, I think that the uh, we're coming back again to the fitness function. If you've got animals which are bored, it's because they just don't have enough to do because you're not challenging them enough to evolve. Um, when you have an implicit fitness function, you have an fitness function which is evolving as they are evolving. And so it is continually challenging them to become better mm -hmm. as a society and better as a population to fit their environment. Yes, yes. It's like, it's like a really going to a school with a really bad lesson or a bad teacher. You know, you've got an explicit fitness function and you're really <laughs> bored with it. Can't you give me something that will let me grow and think? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so in, in that situation, they've solved the problem, as it were and they need a new problem to solve. And what life does when you have an implicit fitness, fitness function, which is, um, which is growing as they grow, which is mm -hmm. what, what life does, um, you don't end up with those scenarios. And you can say that an implicit fitness function is defined by the other creatures around you, so they're getting better, and that makes you have to get better, so there's sort of this implicit competitiveness um, in a good so let's, let's talk a little bit about this, Jeffrey, in terms of community, because I think whenever you have multi-agent simulations, whether you have explicit communication or implicit communication, again, I'm using the explicit, implicit distinction, but I think it's very difficult to have multi-agent simulations where there isn't at least implicit communication. Are you saying that, that you need to have some kind of communication for it to... No, no, not at all. In fact, what I'm saying is the inverse, that if you have an intelligent agent simulation where the agents don't communicate explicitly by something, some code that you've written, uh. purely having them in uh, an interactive environment will create some kind of communication, whether or not you've written it explicitly. Mm. And this is one of these interesting paradoxes, particularly when I talk about language in Noble Ape. Now, previously, there was no explicitly written language, uh, and the apes would develop based on movement, and mm. you would have colonies of apes that would move in particular fashions, and other colonies of apes that were isolated from those kind of movements, mm. and you brought the two of them together, and, you know, the, the, the distinctions were obvious. There was almost a language-like yeah. distinction between these two groups. So, um, Travis, it sounds like you've been doing this kind of development. What, what is your thinking with regards to this? Well, you've hit upon the final, the final piece of the puzzle, which is that you need to have... Um, a, a way for um, the, the, the fitness function needs to can continue to evolve, right? And um, when, you, when you don't have, when you, when you don't, when the, oh, I'm sorry, the, the, this, the intelligence around you, um, it, it has to supply that, right? Uh, oh, I'm sorry, the final piece is one, I've got it now. The final piece is the emergent behavior, right? Um, what you're talking about with these, with these apes, you know, are producing some, uh, behavior as a result of not an uh, explicit communication, but an implicit communication. That's the emergent behavior that needs to be wrapped back into the fitness function to make them more fit. Mm. And that's kind of the ultimate solution in my mind when you're searching for artificial life is the fitness function, which evolves as a function of the emergent behavior. Mm -hmm. So I mean, this is this is exactly my point, but it's this idea that this that by not explicitly stating a fitness function and allowing the fitness function to implicitly come through this kind of emergence that you can get 
uh, the, the kind of simulations that we're talking about, Travis, the kind of uh, higher-level multi-agent simulations where you can observe these kind of characteristics. Now, I'm returning to um, new listeners to this podcast or podca- people who are listening who are interested in creating these kind of simulations. Obviously, uh, Jeffrey's stuff is, is accessible from his site, ventrella.com. The link will be in the show notes. With regards to your stuff, Travis, is any of it in the the public domain? Is any of it open source or uh, able to be accessed? No, not yet. Um, and the reason for that is, number one, it's not complete, and number two, I'm not entirely clear on what the ramifications of me doing that might be. Well, certainly, Jeffrey and I have talked in, in previous podcasts with regards to what open source means for this kind of stuff. I mean, I think what we're doing currently in terms of having this discussion is the ultimate form of open source. Mm-hmm. We're producing ideas that are, are going to be distributed. People have the choice whether or not they choose to download them. But what seems to be happening currently, and I get this information primarily from Bruce, who's come back from doing you know, talks of the um, Gratham folk in Boston, but also people like Justin Lyon and, and people such as um, you know Jeffrey and you've been listening to podcasts for a while, Travis. You get the sense that what we're doing here is actually sharing ideas in a very free and open fashion. Now, the source code behind that, as far as I'm concerned, has limited value compared to the higher level ideas. So the source code for Noble Ape, which I've put out, probably one out of a thousand of the downloads would be people that would look at the source code. However, the source code has been unbelievably helpful for a number of people. And these are people both who communicate with me and people who I discover <laughs> through, you know, wandering through the world and someone says, you know, go with the Noble Ape thing. And, you know, and then he, <laughs> they describe, you know, how they've had to use no, the source code for Noble Ape for a specific project or these kind of things. I mean, this is the beauty with regards to my relationship with Apple in particular, is that they actually go out and actively evangelize Noble Ape to developers who are looking to do particular things. Cool. Um, so that's the benefit of open source in the source code. But I think what we're already doing here, to say you're you know, you're unsure of the ramifications, you've already thrown yourself into the open source realm by talking on this podcast fundamentally. So the source code as far as I can see is is a secondary thing. And honestly um, and, you know, I mean, um, my work offline with Jeffrey um, was with regards to what I believe some of his work was used um, in, a, in a commercial realm. I've, I've talked about in this podcast, I've talked about my own podcast, Ape Reality. So these things happen anyway. But what we're actually doing here is communicating to a growing group of people who would like to see artificial life, the, 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 the wisdom for want of a better word, that we have all generated, be utilized for something that is long-term beneficial and productive, and that's really the kind of message of Biota. So the source code component, as far as I can see, is for people that understand source code, and the podcast components are for people that understand English, and mm-hmm. you know, and these are all moving towards the same thing. Now, talking to someone like Steve Grant, for example, and we will, as promised, have Steve um, in one of these Biota lives one day, um, I, I will hold him to that, is to get some of his wisdom and some of his understanding out as well. Now, Steve has worked um, traditionally in, in probably spaces that you're from, very familiar with, Travis, with regards to commercial games and these kind of things. And obviously that is very much the closed source model, but certainly when I've talked to high-level people at EA and THQ, they've said to me, we would be very receptive to open source artificial life in an SDK form. 
that had a certain degree of testing that we could kind of drag and drop in. And in those kind of environments, I'm sure uh, not only would the participants get credit, uh, but also it would basically strengthen our message. I mean, the, the big problem with regards to Spore, for example, or with regards to Flow, is that they don't get people back into the conversation explicitly. They may do it implicitly. People may say, oh, this sport is interesting. You know, what's kind of like it? Oh, you know, oh, this biota site. Oh, these podcasts, you know. But I think the agreement that we could come to very easily with the likes of THQ and EA is we're doing this as more than academics. We're doing this as part of a broader movement. We want people to come back. Give us some recognition. Well, if, if I may respond to that, um, if you Google for my name, Travis Sabo, you will first of all see that I am a uh, long time, uh, long ago, I was on the cypherpunk list. I'm very much a proponent of the information wants to be free movement. Uh, I am a committer to Apache's JCS, which is, of course, the Java caching system. A huge, um, also a contributor to the Hibernate project and many other open source projects. So I am absolutely a huge proponent of open, of open source, and it is, not, it is not my code or the information that I'm looking to protect. It's actually, uh, I have genuine concerns that what I have produced um, could be very easily used for nefarious purposes, and I want to um, properly understand the ethical ramifications of releasing such a thing into the wild. This is basically, could be the, you know, considered the equivalent of full disclosure when it comes to security. And you know, a lot of people say, well, you need to give the vendors an opportunity to first fix the bug before you release it, release the, the exploit into the wild. And so this is what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to be responsible um, about uh, you know, my, the, release, the release of my code because it is, in my opinion, potentially dangerous. And so that is why I'm trying to get more involved with the community and connect more with smart people who can really help me with this problem. Certainly. And with five minutes remaining, I mean, that is going to be the subject of a, of a biota chat in the future because I think there are a lot of, as, as you touch on, uh, ethical ramifications with regards to the misuse of artificial life. However, I think there are methods in which this information can get out so it is not misused. Um, a kind of reoccurring subtle theme is the you know, nature of Frankenstein, or as um, came through in the last podcast, uh, Gerald's kind of lumbering creatures being creepy and possibly evil and these <laughs> kind of things. So there's an underlying theme with regards to that, and certainly um, uh, even if you look at the uh, singular risk movements and these kind of things, you know, there are all these kind of dark future elements to it as well, which you've touched on with cyberpunk as well. But that's going to be the uh, subject of a, a future biota chat, maybe just you and me, maybe you, me, and Adam, um, specifically to talk about that and then more about the, the broader development that you're, you're doing with Adam currently. So with four minutes remaining, this has been a wonderful uh, conversation, and I hope it's been a lot of food for thought to folks listening in, as I'm sure it has to, to the participants this evening. We're going to have to continue this in some form in a, in a future Biota Live, because I'm sure there are a number of other members of the community that want to jump in and talk a little bit about uh, their own particular experiences in this regard. So, very quick rundown of related news. If you would like to get a book, one of four books, uh, please email me a potential topic for the future, and if we use it, you will get one of the books. Specify which book you'd like, tom at noble8.com. Travis, do you, want to, do you want to talk about anything you're doing currently so folks can check you out? 
Yes, um, absolutely. If you go to, you know, I am the CEO of Verse Studios, which is a uh, game studio. Also, my blog, Ender of Games, E-N-D-E-R of Games. Um, I really would like to connect with people who um, can genuinely help me with my ethics problem and can help me uh, release my code in a, in a safe way and deal with the possible ramifications to um, us as a society of releasing disruptive technology because that's potentially what this is. Certainly. And Jeffrey, I know you're going through your own personal yeah. uh, saga with regards to open source and things of this nature. How, how is that progressing? It's progressing. Um, yeah, it, I wish I could be working on it uh, 24-7 uh, or at least 24-5, but i got to pay the bills, and so I'll probably actually be working on it tonight. Um, as I... Uh, when you had asked me if I was going to open source GenePool, I wasn't sure, and, and I'm much more sure now, and it's just a matter of getting the code fixed up and, um, and getting it out there. So, um, so I think it's coming. Well, as I said, when I interviewed you, how many probably now years ago that I interviewed you initially for this podcast, if you need any assistance and if you need any beta yes. testing or feedback, I'm, I'm more than happy to, to help because yes. definitely GenePool is... Uh, the, you know, up there in terms of one of the um, projects which would be just absolutely wonderful to have in the open source domain. Now, well, I'm sorry, our time is, is running short, so thank you very much, Travis and Jeffrey, folks. Biota.org slash podcast. Our next one will be Saturday morning, 10 a.m. Pacific. Thank you both very much for contributing. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs>